Chapter Three of In a North Country Village by M. E. Francis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Celebrities. A village community is much like any other community when all said and done, to use a phrase common in Thornley. Births and weddings, illnesses and deaths, partings and homecomings take place at rarer intervals, no doubt, than in more populous places and everybody knows everything about everybody else, and sometimes a good deal more than there is to know. But after all, the broad lines of life are the same in a village as elsewhere, and human nature is human nature all the world over. Thornley, quiet and easy-going as it is, is not altogether behind the age either. Indeed, its tiny stage has been the scene of many curious dramas, and it has numbered among its inhabitants some that would be notabilities anywhere. Not so long ago there was a saint in Thornley, a genuine saint, called Peter Murphy. As his name betokens, he was an Irishman, though he had lived in the village long enough to be no longer looked on as an interloper. A tall, emaciated old man, with long grey hair and very blue eyes, and a drop at the end of his nose, at all times and in all weathers, which was called by the irreverent holy water. He had revelations and spiritual consolations, and wrestlings with the evil one, and always carried a long bone rosary which he would lovingly finger during every spare moment he could snatch from his work. Once, when Peter was ill, the rosary disappeared, a fact which he announced with mingled ire and triumph. Someone weakly suggested that the old woman who did for him might have hidden it somewhere in dusting and tidying, but he dismissed the notion with scorn. Not at all, he said, not at all, it's thou old boy. I know that very well, jerking his thumb over his shoulder with an unpleasantly significant gesture, but I'm up to his thricks, ha! I'll be even with him, I'll settle him. The methods which Peter made use of in the conflict never transpired, but that he ultimately came off victorious was demonstrated by the reappearance of the bades, which thenceforth he wore for greater security round his neck. His chief delight was to beguile the canon into a theological discussion, and it was fine to hear him laying down the law, putting forward one abstruse thesis after another, and generally crushing his adversary with a reference to Pope Celestinus, whose authority he considered conclusive. Once, and only once, did Peter's holy calm desert him, and that was during certain elections which took place when home rule first began to be the question of the hour. All poor old Peter's national instincts asserted themselves, and he became as wildly excited as the most enthusiastic Parnellite of the present day. He even fell foul of his clergy, whose political views did not coincide with his own, and meeting the priest one day, accused him sternly of voting for Herod, an outburst of which he subsequently repented, acknowledging in bitterness of spirit that the election was a snare. The village poetess is of the same nationality as Peter, and shares his political views and his partiality for fine words. She disposes her shawl about her shoulders, she prostrates on her bed, but it is when the mood for versifying seizes her that she shows of what she is really capable. Her genius chiefly displays itself in the composition of dirges, one of which goes the round of the village after any melancholy event. 
and once she was inspired to write a plea for the disestablishment of the church of england a terrible paper this abounding in exhortations to gory tyrants and in references to clanking chains it is a thing to remember when the authoress recites one of these masterpieces swaying her body to and fro and making sweeping gestures her eye meanwhile in fine frenzy rolling and her voice growing louder and more impassioned as she warms to her subject i can only recall two consecutive lines however of one effusion a lament on the death of her beloved priest in which regret for his loss was mingled with anxiety as to his successor let not his lordship the bishop think with him i mean to interfere but i hope he'll appoint an irishman to his evacuated chair apropos of frenzy we had a real madman in thornley once we knew he'd been off it for a good bit for his wife used occasionally to lock up his hat and boots to prevent his going out and was not infrequently seen pelting him with mud in the village street at nights as a gentle means of persuading him to come home to bed but nobody heeded poor joe's vagaries and thornley was considerably startled when one morning the news flew from house to house that he was raving mad there had been sports in the squire's park on the preceding day in honour of the queen's jubilee at which every man woman and child in the place had assisted even the village radical who was wont to relate to an awe-stricken and incredulous audience how once he had walked all the way to liverpool to see her majesty and how after all when he had got there he had seen naught but a woman in black well poor joe had taken part in a tug-of-war and woke up next morning under the impression that it was entirely owing to his exertions that thornley had gained the day he spent the whole forenoon walking round and round in a small circle in front of the hall pausing occasionally to tug at the bell and claim his prize five pounds was the reward to which he considered himself entitled and failing that he had apparently made up his mind to gyrate on that particular spot for an indefinite period persuasions were tried then threats various small offerings were put forth to tempt him finally the squire himself came out to reason with him but joe still twirling round and round in the broiling sun remained obdurate five pounds for his deserts and five pounds he meant to have but he wouldn't mind he observed with an insinuating leer when the aforesaid teetotum performance next brought him face to face with the squire he wouldn't mind treating the young ladies to the theatre with some of it he wouldn't mind that at all he would take them himself and the squire might come too if he liked in desperation the butler had recourse to strategy and walking up to joe managed to break the magic circle slipping his arm through his and marching him off homewards pouring some apparently intensely confidential communication into the lunatic's ears as he went presently he returned jubilant with the announcement that joe was tucked up in bed quite comfortable and expecting the five pound note to arrive by post he wouldn't get out again he added as the womankind had taken away his clothes and locked him into the room but joe was not to be stopped by such slight obstacles as these he broke open the door as if it had been made of pasteboard and announced his intention of proceeding to the hall forthwith in his shirt his garments being consequently restored to him he made quite a triumphant progress through the village 
and enjoyed himself amazingly, knocking down his papa to begin with, making nothing of the latter's seventeen stone, then chivying his aunt till she was obliged to take refuge in the barn and to defend herself with a pitchfork, and finally betaking himself to the hall where he played peep-bow with the stable-men, sent the gardeners spinning when they endeavoured to lay hands on him, broke open a few doors, and laid about him right and left with a stout staff, all in the most light-hearted and affable manner possible. At last, one of the keepers had the happy inspiration of firing blank cartridges over his head, whereupon Joe took to his heels and fled like a hare, never stopping indeed till he reached his own home and crept under the table. He was ultimately secured with stout cords, and his father sat opposite to him, cracking a horsewhip now and then by way of soothing him, until the police came to end poor Joe's frolic by carrying him off to the county asylum. Some years ago a lad was attending Thornley School, who promised to render his native village celebrated in more ways than one. A black-eyed, rosy-cheeked, rough-looking boy, with nevertheless a fine artistic perception, and a perfect passion for drawing. Had that boy been given facilities for cultivating it, there is no saying what he might not have done. But as it was... Well, I must tell his story. His name was Johnny Birch. Johnny or John's, he was usually called, to distinguish him from various kinsfolk of the same name. And his father was a small farmer with a large family who looked forward eagerly to the time when his eldest son should be of age to help him in field work, and thus save hire. Johnny's schooling was in itself a trial. Indeed, Mr. Birch had gone so far as to interview the mistress on the subject. Can't he run him through them standards a bit faster? I'd be willing to pay double the fee if you'd get him through two at a time. Come now, is that a bargain? But it wasn't. The schoolmistress assured him it couldn't be done, and John Birch, John O'Joe's, retired grumbling more against book-learning than ever. If the time which his son perforce employed in such matters was held by him to be wasted, one may readily infer with what patience he viewed Johnny's growing devotion to the fine arts. "'If I catch it any more of that gammon,' the elder John would say, driving home the lesson with a box on the ears." and Johnny Jr. would jump up in a great hurry and hide away his papers. He could better endure to have his ears boxed than to see his beloved drawings turned up or burnt. In spite of the parental disapproval, he continued to draw, or to attempt to draw, everything which he saw. The canon, chancing to see some of his performances, was struck with their cleverness, and being himself no mean artist, offered to give him some lessons. John O'Joe's consent was withheld for a long time, and at last only given on the understanding that as soon as his son had left school, all that nonsense must cease. Meanwhile, Johnny made the very best use of his time, and astonished his master by his progress. The latter, not content with verbal instruction, lent him books and drawings to study at home, and bestowed on him, moreover, a sheaf of old art papers to peruse at his leisure. Some of these contained lives of various great artists, and Johnny's eyes grew round and his face flushed as he read how many of them were poor boys like himself, and began by scratching their drawings on stones, or decorating garret walls with burnt stick. 
the moral was obvious johnny too drew on stones with the point of his knife and on whitewashed walls with charcoal of his own manufacture why should not he be a celebrated painter it was very hard after this to be called upon to feed the pigs or to clean out the shippens day by day he set about these tasks with more unwillingness and day by day his father grew more displeased as his fourteenth birthday drew near johnny's uneasiness increased though he had by no means passed all the standards for his artistic studies somewhat lessened his zeal for the acquirement of ordinary knowledge his father would then be free to keep him at home his drawing lessons would cease and he must make up his mind to lead thenceforth the life of an ordinary labourer the boy fretted and fumed and at last his very desperation giving him courage betook himself to thornley hall to petition the squire himself to intercede for him if the squire would ask his father to let him be an artist johnny thought he would not refuse he took with him five or six of his very finest works of art amongst the rest a study of a fir tree which looked as if it were cut out of green paper and a view of his father's house which he had done entirely by himself and in which any little defect in perspective was atoned for by a scrupulous attention to detail poor johnny handed these one by one to the squire his heart beating very fast and his eyes glowing and the squire wrinkled up his eyes and twisted his moustache and said ha 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 in a way which would have disconcerted any sensitive young artist very much but johnny's skin was of a comfortable thickness and to his mind the drawings were beautiful if the squire did not say much it was probable that he thought all the more highly of them indeed he told johnny presently that he considered his work quite wonderful considering his circumstances and opportunities but at the same time warned him that his plans were impracticable a great deal of hard study would be required and a good deal of expense incurred before johnny could hope to complete his artistic education and though no doubt a little friendly aid might be forthcoming as regarded the necessary outlay still his father could not be expected to allow him to adopt a profession in which success was doubtful and at best must be delayed for long years poor johnny however pleaded so earnestly and wept so bitterly that at last the squire promised to see what he could do and accordingly set out one sunday afternoon accompanied by the canon to plead on johnny's behalf mr birch who was alone the rest of the family having stepped across to a neighbour's was sitting by a roasting fire in his shirt sleeves and stocking feet enjoying his pipe in the proper sunday spirit he listened to everything they urged in absolute silence well birch what do you say asked the squire after waiting patiently for a moment or two what do i say squire i say no that's what i say the lad's my lad i reckon and i'm going to have summat out of him i've been working all my life and he may work a bit now i'm not going to slave no more for him to be scribbling and messing with reds and blues he mun have done with that sort of work and so i tell thee squire there that's what i say not another word could be extracted from him and the visitors were constrained to retire the squire endeavouring to console poor johnny who was anxiously awaiting the result outside by the presence of a sovereign telling him to buy some oil colours and paint signboards in his spare time 
when the boy entered the house he found his father still thoughtfully smoking with his worsted-clad toes extended to the blaze now lad he said i've summat to say to ye go and fetch me every one of those pictures o yours fetch em here i tell ee and dunnot stand staring as though you'd seen a boggart father you wunna pleaded poor johnny turning pale go and fetch em i tell ee cried his father thumping the table heavily with his fist or i'll fetch em myself and if i do it'll be the worse for you and fetch your pencils and paints and all the rest of that rubbish the boy obeyed slowly and tearfully and mr birch spreading out all these treasures on the table wheeled round in his chair and took his pipe out of his mouth now see you here my lad i dunnot want to be anyways hard on you but i mun show you who's gaffery this house squire's been here and canon's been here and what i've told em i tell you you mun ha done wi all that foolery you're getting a man now and you mun give over that nonsense i've worked hard all my life and your mother have worked hard we's be old folk in a few years and there's all that rook o little uns to do for and mostly wenches as isn't fit for much now who's to do it who's to work for feyther and mother when they ain't got too old to work for theirselves who but the oldest lad so now johnny make up your mind to it for i'll stick to it you and me'll start ploughing to-morrow and we'll be done with these things once and for all with a sudden quick gesture he swept together all johnny's cherished works of art his paint-box an old one of the cannons his little stock of pencils and paper then holding the boy off with one powerful hand he thrust them into the very heart of the glowing coals where in a few seconds all were alike destroyed johnny in an agony of sobs wrenched himself away and ran out of the house and mr birch returned to the enjoyment of his pipe and the contemplation of the fire presently his wife came in and began to make preparations for tea the small fry dropping in one by one and surrounding the table what's gone we are johnny asked mrs birch as she seated herself behind the big brown teapot on which the little folk fixed expectant eyes eh he's somewhere about answered her lord turning his chair round to the table he'll come in before he's clemmed i dare say when the meal was over however and it grew dusk the good woman began to be first angry and then anxious whatever can i come to the lad i've never known him to do such a thing as stay out till this hour if he's gone footballing in sunday clothes i'll nay he's none the lad to go footballing interrupted mr birch dunnot ye bother yersel about him he's taken the sulk at summer as i've said and wunnot come in till bedtime most like it's best not to take no notice mrs birch was uneasy in her mind nevertheless and stole out after putting the children to bed creeping round the shippons and stackyard and calling softly all the time but no johnny appeared it was now nine o'clock and she became so seriously alarmed that she ran indoors shook her husband out of his nap and implored him to take a lantern and sally forth at once in search of the lad for she felt sure that something had happened to him but the father laughed at her fears and refused to budge if their johnny chose to be a fool let him be a fool 
if he didn't want to come in to his good supper and warm bed let him lie outside with an empty stomach then it had happened cool him a bit and do him good but he's got his sunday clothes on sobbed mrs birch this was the barb to the dart for her johnny to sleep out of doors was bad enough but to sleep out in his best clothes her husband only growled some inarticulate rejoinder so mrs birch reduced to the last extremity flung her apron over her head and wept johnny did not come back that night nor next day nor for many days after his mother was quite heartbroken but his father was apparently more angry than grieved he and the neighbours searched far and near john o joe's promising the lad a good thrashing when he caught him but johnny was by this time far beyond the reach of the parental arm and in spite of all efforts could not be found it was noticeable that about this time john o joe's began to wear what his neighbours called a down look and to stoop more than before and to leave off whistling at his work his temper too was shorter than ever and much sympathy was felt for poor mrs birch for it was well known that she could not indulge openly in her grief her husband having forbidden even the name of the fugitive to be mentioned in his presence one cold evening in early winter about five months after his departure all the family were assembled at tea when the latch was suddenly lifted and johnny stood hesitatingly on the threshold such a ghost of a johnny pale and thin and shorn of his thick dark locks and his clothes his sunday clothes no scarecrow of any respectability would be seen in such things mrs birch flung her arms round his neck in a passion of mingled joy and anguish and his brothers and sisters tumbled over each other in their eagerness to welcome him but his father sat still and after one steady glance at him continued to munch his bread and bacon and to gulp down his tea eh feyther ain't ye niver a word for the poor lad asked mrs birch tearfully when the first greetings were over and she had leisure to observe this attitude of her master's john birch finished chewing the morsel in his mouth swallowed it and slowly extended his forefinger what's gone wi's air he inquired addressing his wife and pointing to johnny i've just come out o hospital feyther i've had a fever and then cuttin' it all off answered the boy for himself ah said john senior still addressing his wife i'm glad to hear as twas but in hospital if t'ad been in prison as they'd done it he might spare himself the trouble o sitting down come master the lad's home at last and ye'll not go for to be hard on him he's had trouble enough i reckon ay that have i put in johnny timidly eh feyther if ye did but know the hardships i've been through ye'd forgive me ye would feyther beginning to sob cold and hunger and wet and hard words everywhere ah interrupted john it's easy seen why he's come back but why did he go what took him out of this that's what i want to know feyther i were very wicked and foolish but i was mad wi her for burning all my paints and everything i'd done and squire had give me a pound and so i i went off to london thinking i'd get work there and become a great painter and ye found you a nobbut a gradely fool said his father 
glancing at him for the first time, and you think as I'm going to be another, and welcome you back as if you was the best son a man could have, instead of a thankless lad we neither art nor thought for the father and mother as done everything for him. I'll do no such thing. You went when you liked, and you come back when you liked. I'm not going to say I'm glad to see you. As you're here you can bide, but you mun work for your mate, I'll tell you that. I'm not going to keep you in idleness. Now, missus, sit you down and give us some more tea. One of the younger children set a chair for Johnny, and his mother put food before him, but the boy's heart was too full to permit him to eat, and after endeavouring for a moment or two to choke down his sobs, he buried his face in his hands and wept bitterly. John O'Joe's pushed back his chair with a grating noise on the flagged floor and went out, and the rest of the family endeavoured to console Johnny. Being still weak and ill, exhausted by his long journey and his recent emotion, it was long before he could control himself sufficiently to relate his story, a pitiful story enough, of disappointed hopes and rudely dispelled illusions. Poor Johnny, had speedily found his level in the great wilderness of London, and his aspirations were extinguished for evermore. There had been a futile struggle with pride and poverty, hunger, hardship, sickness, and finally the longing for home. He had tramped from London by slow stages, and now, oh, if his father would only forgive him! How could he ever hold up his head again if he treated him as he had done that night? Thy feyther speaks harder nor what he feels, I'll tell ee that, said Mrs. Birch. Thou mun just take no notice and he'll come round, but thou'll ha' to work, lad, and no more scribbling. No, Johnny had done with scribbling for good, but as he staggered up to bed, it would appear that the amount of labour to be expected from him for some time was likely to be small enough. Nevertheless, morning saw him clad in his working clothes, which he had very much outgrown by the by, and busy in the farmyard. His father gave an odd grunt when he found him at work, but otherwise did not notice him, and presently the pair sallied forth together to plough up a certain field ready for the spring sowing. Mr. Birch might have seen, had he been a little more on the alert, how feeble were the lad's steps as they plodded up and down, how pale was his face, how, in spite of the raw cold, drops of weakness stood on his brow, but he took no heed of him, beyond an occasional harsh reminder not to go asleep there, or to lift his legs a bit faster. At last, towards noonday, just as they were turning at the end of a furrow, Johnny suddenly let go the horse's head, staggered sideways with a smothered groan, and fell heavily to the ground. Then, a hoarse cry was heard, and John Birch sprang forward and took the boy in his arms. Eh, my lad, my lad. A few minutes later, Mrs. Birch was startled to see her husband come staggering into the kitchen carrying Johnny, whose long attenuated limbs hung apparently lifeless over his arms, while his head drooped upon his shoulder. Eh, master, you've killed him, cried the mother in her anguish. I reckon I have, lass, answered John O'Joe's, and then he burst into tears. But Johnny was not dead, not he. 
he soon opened his eyes and finding himself in his father's arms flung out his own and so the two hugged and kissed each other as they had not done since johnny was a little fellow in pinafores everything was made up after this and johnny soon got strong and is now a strapping youth his father's right hand and not by any means a genius End of chapter 3